This episode of the Bonsai Network podcast is brought to you by ASAN Bonsai. ASAN is a full-service bonsai nursery located just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. To schedule a visit to ASAN, head over to www.asan.com. That's www.eisei-en.com. All right, I am here today with Yannick Kiggin from Belgium. How you doing, Yannick? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent. Welcome to the uh, Bonsai Network podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for inviting me as well. Uh, looking forward for to to this to this episode. So uh, yeah, yeah, it should be fun. So uh, I mean, you and I have actually known each other for uh, for quite a while, I guess. Uh, you know, we met I think for the first time in Japan, uh, way way back in the day. We'll, we'll get into sort of why you were in Japan and what you were doing there a little bit later in this episode. But I thought for starters, it might be a good idea for you to kind of introduce yourself, uh, tell everybody where you're from where you got interested in bonsai, maybe how old you were, um, and some of your experiences there. Okay, super. So uh, everyone, my name is Janne Kege from uh, Yama Bonsai Studio. That's uh, my business here in Belgium. Um, I started with bonsai when I was around 10 years old, more or less. And then from the age of 12, I started to work at uh, uh, Momiji, uh, Momiji Studio, Bonsai Studio, in uh, Diepenbeek in Belgium, with a professional cultural Paul Polmans. Um, I worked there for eight years, more or less, and after that, I thought it was time to go my own way, and I got the opportunity, uh, because of Peter Warren, to start at Chunkan. So then my journey at Chunkan began, and uh, was there for around five months, more or less. It was a great time, uh, a lot of work, uh, hard work, but very nice. He's quite a strict person and it's quite nice to see. So uh, yeah, it was a, was a fun time over there. Then after that, uh, I started my journey here in Belgium again with uh, founding of, founding, is that the right word? Yeah, uh, Yama Bonsai Studio. And from then on, um, everything's got better and better. Uh, soon probably I will also have bonsai as a full occupation. Um, we're also starting, because my garden is not that very big and everything is starting to get packed with trees. So we're starting to look for an, uh, a different house with, um, um, with um, somewhere where I can give classes and a place where I can have some stock like materials for bonsai and pots and stuff like that. Because now I have material at my father's place or my parents' place. Uh, I'm at the parents of my girlfriend's place and stuff like that. So I need to go to every time to different places to collect stuff that I need to send to, to, to different people because since short time we also uh, started the rub shop and stuff like that. So yeah. Okay, cool. So how, how old were you when you uh, went to Mr. Kobayashi's nursery Shunkaen in Japan and, and how did you uh, come about doing that with Peter Warren? Um, when I had the age of 16 or 17, I uh, got the opportunity to give a demonstration in uh, Bath in England, in the UK, and there I met Peter Warren. And um, because it was a long time dream of me to go to Japan, because it's for me it was like this is what I really want to do. Um, um, uh, when I um, was, I think, I think it was eight. 
eight or nine years ago that I was there. Could have been seven, maybe. I don't know. I've eight, eight, I think. So then, in my head, I I, I contacted uh, Pete. Uh, I con- in my head, I had the idea to send an email to Peter Warren, and to look what was possible. And um, he talked with Kobayashi's uh, son, the uh, Oyakata, about um, getting me there. So then, in I worked there for two weeks to try it out. And then after that, I went from September to November or, or, or December, I worked there over there. So, and then I had back to Belgium again. Okay. Yeah. So I, I know that, uh, you know, I talked to Andre la- last week in last week's podcast about his experiences at Mr. Kimura's nursery as an apprentice there. I know that uh, Mr. Kobayashi is a pretty strict guy, uh, similar to Mr. Kimura. So what, uh, what was kind of the, the schedule uh, of a day there? What time did you start in the morning? What kind of things did you work on? How long did you work during the day? Uh, most of the time we start at six o'clock and then we had uh, uh, breakfast. And then after breakfast, we started with working and stuff like that. And we had to work around until 11 or 12 o'clock in the evening. So I don't know if it's already changed, but I think it's quite a good thing. And he was quite a strict person, but he also had certain values what was very important like if we were eating that if we had rice in our bowl that the last the last piece of rice we had to eat as well so because that's a small grain and with that grain you can you can uh you can sow or how do you call it so and you can have different other rice grains again so he tried to to teach us not only values and bonsai but to be humble and to to respect nature and stuff like that as well so that was also quite interesting okay what uh what was sort of his uh, teaching style because i know that, you know i've seen him on tv quite a bit i actually know mr kobayashi quite well because we take our tour groups there every year but my guess is that uh, the way he treats our groups when we come in is very different to how he treats the apprentices behind the scenes uh, so maybe you could kind of tell us what his teaching style was like. How strict was he? What were the kind of things that he would teach you on a regular basis on a, a, an average day? He's very active in, in a kind of way. So he, for, for his age, he has lots of energy. So when he teaches, he shows it and he does all the time we had to watch because it was not really like explaining stuff like that. But he would work on a tree and, and he showed us how he had, had to do it and stuff like that. But in the time when I was there, he was very much into Chinese bonsai, more or less, because he had a lot of Chinese customers. So, um, but the way he teach was, was quite strict and stuff like that. But it was quite, quite fun. Sometimes we had a good laugh and stuff like that. And he, like, how do I have to say? He has a lot of energy. So he's very, working very fast and hyperactive onto the tree. I don't know if you if you can imagine, but also like like um, a showman a little bit. So like when he's on stage, he 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 puts up a show on it, and that's also quite interesting. Oh yeah, I I remember it was uh, last year when I came to do the the trophy for the first time in Belgium, uh, and he was the one of the guest artists there as well. He was uh, center stage, and I was uh, right hand stage. Uh, but he was working on a big uh, taxis at the time. And I remember he got out a giant chainsaw and just hacked half the tree off and started carving away at it in front of the audience and making a whole bunch of noise and all the sawdust is flying everywhere. Uh, and then he'll hold like four or five tools in each hand. 
<laughs> while he works. I don't know exactly how that works, but it looks cool when you're sitting in the audience for sure. And, and he, he can do the trick, but I tried it as well. But for me, I have something wrong in my brain and it's not possible to work that way. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so while you were there, you were there um, basically in the fall, correct? Because I remember you and I actually met for the first time at the Taikon 10. Uh, which is the big exhibition in Kyoto in November. Uh, I remember you came down, you came into the event. Uh, you had a little less spiky hair then than you do now. Uh, and I remember uh, after you came up and, and we met and talked at Fujikawa-san's booth, you walked away. Fujikawa-san looked at me and was like, was that guy Tom Cruise? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently everybody in Japan thinks you look like Tom Cruise. Yeah, true. Uh, and at the beginning when I was there, I had spiky hair. And then they all call me uh, David Beckham, like, oh, you are David Beckham. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I don't really look like him. And then because we, we, we had to work from, from 6 to 11 or 12, 12, 12 o'clock at night. And we had one, one holiday day in a month. And the first time I went there, I thought, oh, I have holiday. But you had to go outside of Shunkaen and then you could go. And then, uh, so you had to go to, to the town or to, to Tokyo, and then you had holiday, more or less. But because if, if you stayed at the nurse, if you stayed near the nursery, he would make you work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the first time I, I, it was like six thirty or something, and he took he took me out of bed, so I had to work. <laughs> so because of that, my hair growed, and I had like, how do you call it? Tom Cruise kind of style of hair so I went then to Taiken Tan and then they all were like oh you look like Tom Cruise <laughs> so it was quite funny yeah so while you were there you were only there for a five-month period that's actually a pretty decent chunk of time but during that period was Mr. Kobayashi good about letting you work on good quality material yeah yeah um, on that perspective I had quite a, a lot of luck um, because he let me work on quite some nice material so that was quite fun um, it was also because um, Jinsan was just there as well and Osama-san also so and there uh, Peter Warren came sometimes in, in, in busy periods and Akiyama-san and Fukita-san and stuff like that so and they could could um, uh, take an eye on us so I think we were quite happy that, that they were there and they could help us and, and, and teach us techniques as well because Kobayashi also was uh, always busy with uh, Chinese customers and stuff like that so when he had time he came into this in, in, into the how do you call it uh, into the working area and he showed us techniques and stuff like that but we also learned a lot from Akiyama-san and Peter Warren and Valentin Bros and, and, and Fukita-san so yeah, it's nice. Uh, I last time I was at Mr. Kobayashi's place, I asked him how many apprentices he's had over the years. Mm -hmm. and he told me somewhere in the neighborhood. I think he said like sixty, is what he told me. So, and he uh, of course includes you and and all of the other students that have come in from Europe or you know uh, Southeast Asia or China or all sorts of different areas. So, uh, you mentioned uh, Jean Sun, uh, who was uh, your senpai yeah. while you were there. Uh, Jean has kind of. Uh, become i guess mr kobayashi's second hand man yeah that's true uh, you know so he he sort of runs the operations there and he speaks multiple languages i know he speaks english chinese uh, japanese of course and maybe another language or two yeah it could, could, could be possible yeah yeah but he's he's one of the guys that when we go in with our tour groups if he's there he'll guide the tour group around and he'll do it in english 
um, and explain, you know, the tokenomas and and the setup there. So, you know, for those who are listening to this podcast who don't know what Mr. Kobayashi's nursery looks like, maybe you could kind of describe uh, what it is. It, it's technically a museum, but maybe you can kind of describe what the setups are and, and uh, the tokenomas and all of that. Okay, yeah. Um, so actually when you when you are in the neighborhood you wouldn't say that there is like a, a bonsai nursery there but when you go into the environment and you go into shunkan then you see a peaceful area with a lot of a lot of trees and a lot of high quality trees and then uh, you go to the entrance and then you first see when you go straight on um, his private collection more or less in in in, in the circle and close to there is also a pond and then on the right side is, is his workshop where we work and where he also teaches uh, uh, classes to, to people and stuff like that. And then on the left side is an area where he have, uh, uh, does have like uh, high quality pots and stuff like that. And if you follow that way and go then go uh, to the right, then you go to um, the place where, he, where people or where visitors can talk with him and stuff like that. And he will talk about his books uh, that he has on the market and he will sign a book for, uh, for you and stuff like that. Um, then we should then go from, cause that's also the place where we have breakfast and stuff like that. If we then go to the right, then you have like the museum. And there they have like uh, different kinds of tokenomas. And then he explains about um, the museum, how it was built and what kind of wood they use and stuff like that. Um, and then I think when you go up, then he has like his, his really, really uh, old antique pots uh, museum. So it's quite, quite in incredible to see. And then all around there's uh, all the other trees that are for sale and stuff like that. And also customer trees and, 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 and how do you name it? But I think since my last stay there, also changed a lot so I, I don't know how it how it looks now more or less but I should visit them again one time oh yeah definitely every every year that we go we take our tour group there and every year there are big changes that happen and more and more trees and less and less space for things <laughs> it gets more and more crowded he's got stuff up on all of the roofs around the nursery now uh, which is kind of cool uh, but you know you were mentioning the uh, the shingyo so the uh, sort of formal, informal, and semi-formal way of displaying. Uh, so I think what you were referencing was the, the three different tokenomas that are in that first room that he has at the museum. Uh, each one of those represents the Shin, the Gyo, or the So. So uh, one is formal. I believe Shin is formal. Uh, yeah. So that tokenoma has the black lacquer uh, wood that runs along the base of it. And then I think the one next to it is uh, the semi-formal, uh, so the Gyo. Uh, is that right? Yeah, the gyo. I'm, I'm so sure. that has, yeah. So the the gyo has uh, still really nice wood, but it's usually a lighter color lacquer, uh, you know, more of a brownish kind of color rather than the dark black of the formal uh, tokonoma. And then you have the informal on the other end, which is just natural wood, right? So you get the the mix of of those three. So when you were there, did he have you uh, with the other apprentices set up some of the displays? Uh, yes. Um, the the things what he did he was he would uh, talk with us about uh, getting this tree and that tree and and then um, he asked out someone else like you you can take this table and that table and that table and then uh, we had to set things up and he said in which ones we had to set up and on which scroll we had to use and which accent plan or tampire and stuff like that 
and then he, he explained why he would use that one and why why different kinds of things and also why to put the one in the shin and why in the gear in the show so it was quite 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 interesting in, in, in my opinion so yeah that's very cool i know uh you know with formal display in japan or just display in general particularly when you're doing it in a tokonoma setting uh, you know, in his nursery there with the museum, almost every time he does a display, he'll set it up with a scroll. Uh, and usually the scroll, you know, it, it could have some sort of scenery on it. It could have an animal on it. It could have writing, uh, you know, Chinese characters on it. Uh, but typically the scroll is, uh, it's supposed to aid in uh, the viewer sort of understanding the season mm -hmm. that the, the whole display is supposed to represent. Uh, and usually the scroll is meant to indicate the upcoming season. So, for example, you know, if it's like September, it's still hot in Japan, but you do a scroll that has something that uh, maybe has like an autumn moon on it, for example, so that it sort of indicates that the autumn is coming. Or in the spring, say in like February, for example, uh, or maybe even March, you do a display with like cherry blossoms. So it indicates that the cherries are coming in the next month or, or you know two weeks or whatever so it, it kind of gets your mindset thinking about the season to come which i think is pretty cool yeah it's pretty pretty cool though yeah, yeah true yeah that's awesome so uh, after you finished at mr kobayashi's nursery you came back to uh, belgium and then uh, set up your yama bonsai studio right um i started building building the house and then we set up uh, yama bonsai studio and the thing what we do is uh, I have students and I also travel around to give classes to, to uh, students. Um, and my students come every, every two weeks, they come back on the ones who follow classes in, during the week times. And the ones who follow classes during the weekends, they come every each month, uh, one, one, one time a month. So that's quite, quite, quite good for them. And we can follow up the trees and stuff like that. So yeah. Okay, so and you're you're doing the teaching yourself for the most part, but you also have uh, guest artists come in on occasion too, right? Yes, wow. yes, yes, yes. Like uh, we had you a couple of times, so uh, very interesting. Everybody is very happy with that. Um, we also have a school with Manuel Germade. Um, we are now in our our fourth year. That's amazing. I can't believe how quickly time flies by. Yes, time time goes very fast. You wouldn't say so because it's like when we saw each other in China, like that it was like one year ago or something like that, but I think it's already three or four years, no, three years yeah. ago. Yeah, when we saw each other in China, that was uh, 2016, I think, in December. So it's almost four years almost ago. Almost four years and you wouldn't say <laughs> That's so. That's crazy, yeah. And last time when you were, were here was also... That was probably 2015, maybe? I don't know. 2014 it's been a long time yeah, it's, 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 I, mean, it's I, I don't long. i don't remember much of it because uh we spent most of the time drinking beer <laughs> <laughs> i remember we went out to uh was it eindhoven, eindhoven yeah, in, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that, that's the netherlands right that, that's the netherlands I yeah live, just right across the border yeah there. i live close to the border so eindhoven is 30 minutes from from my place so uh, yeah, it was uh, quite fun. <laughs> yeah, no, I remember we, uh, I was like, all right, we got to the workshop tomorrow morning. It starts at like 8.30 or nine in the morning. So 
you know, we got to leave Eindhoven by two so we can at least get, you know, five hours of sleep. Yeah. We so, ended up not getting back until seven in the morning. Yeah, I, I didn't know anymore. <laughs> we slept for like 30 minutes yeah, could and be then possible. got up the next day and did, did the workshop. I thought I was going to die. Yeah, I can't believe. But the work you did was good, so nobody was, complained. Yeah, I, I've, I've developed a good poker face, I guess. Living in Japan all those years, going out and drinking with uh, Fujikawa-san and the other apprentices, you know, you just you have to get through the pain the next day and just do the work. Yeah, true. But we we all get older and wiser, so <laughs> this is true. I don't go out a lot that often anymore, so uh, it's it's not not that 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 style of living is is passed away. <laughs> oh yeah, mo most definitely. I I can only handle about one or two beers, and then I feel it the next morning. So you're yeah, here to say <laughs> I gotta be careful. Here to say so. <laughs> yeah. So the the last time I saw you was actually in. Uh, was it Brazil or no? It would I guess it would have been at the trophy. Uh, yeah, last year. But right yeah. before that, about six months or eight months before that, we actually ended up going to Brazil. To Brazil, yeah, uh, to do the. Uh, I don't know if it was the Brazilian national event or if it was just uh, Chicao's event at his place. Uh, I can't remember how they build it, but in any case, it was a lot of fun. We went to um, was it Belo Belo Horizonte? Belo Horizonte. Yeah, yeah in in Brazil. There's a, a really cool facility there uh, owned by a guy named Chikau. Uh, you know, really, really cool guy. He's been growing junipers in the ground for, I think, like 25 or 26 years, twisting them up every year. Uh, they're Formosana junipers, which are the, uh, the Taiwanese junipers. But he'd let them grow to, you know, like 20 feet tall. So what's that, like three, four, five meters tall? Uh, and then graft Itoigawa down at the base. So you and I got to work on some of that material down there, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, because that mindset, I, I also start now with with uh, creating trees or uh, growing trees and into the into the soil and stuff like that. But also a couple of weeks, I contacted them if maybe it was possible to import some of his trees to to Belgium and stuff like that. Because what he did was really, especially in that time, to have that idea to 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 do that in, in Brazil already. It's quite interesting, but if because like in Europe or maybe um, the United States, no one has done it before. Not not in the way he he has done it. So so it was quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he took basically the model from Japan, from Taiwan, and just followed it to the T. And everybody, I remember when we were there, he told me that everybody, you know, 25, 26 years ago when he started doing it, everybody was making fun of him, saying that you know all you're doing is twisting up these little whips, you know, these will never amount to anything, but he was playing the long game and did it for 25, 26 years. And every year he'd plant a new batch in the ground. So now that we're at that point where everything is big enough to be collected every year, he's got at least a hundred plants that he can then collect out and then start working on. And the technique that he was using down there, um, I forget what it's called. I think it's Sidao, Shidao, something like that. Sidao, yeah. Sidao. Uh, uh, it's a technique from Taiwan for creating deadwood on junipers, like a peeling type technique. Uh, he's sort of mastered that technique down there. He had some really cool kind of uh, modified dental tools that he would work with, and he showed us how to do that sort of peeling technique. And it was something I had never really done before, at least not to that degree. But some of the work was just insane. I thought yeah. it was really cool. Also, also the work and, and the material was really insane. And the trees where we could work on, they were, they were incredible. I still remember the one you had to do as demonstration that I had to help you. In, and that, that, was, that was quite an incredible tree. I, 
I wonder how, how it looks now because uh, it was really cool tree. Awesome. Yeah, actually, um, Mauro Stemberger, he was there with us uh, while we were there. And he uh, has actually gone back, I think, at least twice a year since then to do a school with the Junipers uh, at that location. Uh, so about, uh, I think, maybe six or eight months ago, he sent me some photos of those trees. Uh, and they're actually developing pretty nicely. I mean, we we did a lot of heavy duty cutting and deadwood work on them. So I was actually kind of concerned that, you know, portions of the tree might die completely. They didn't skip a beat. They did absolutely fine. So I think it has everything to do with the climate down there. Uh, as a matter of fact, when we were there, uh, Chikawa was showing us how he does the approach graphs on those junipers, taking the Itoigawa and grafting it to the base of the Formosana. Uh, and it was super simple. I'd never seen it done before. He just does a simple T graft. Uh, and he showed me how he did it. I mean, he just takes a, a simple box cutter, you know, exposes the cambium on the whip, makes a little bit of a notch in the, the Formosana juniper and just wedges the graft in there. Uh, and he said within six months, he can separate the root system from the approach graft. And within a year, he can replace the original foliage with all new Itoigawa foliage, which is crazy. It takes us here usually two to three years to be able to do that full process. You know, but for him, it was it was a, basically a year to a year and a half. He could have total replacement of the original foliage, which is nuts. That's that's really fast. I've we've done some couple of graftings here here with with Manuel, with uh, the small skines or, or, or how do you call them or the small whips. Yeah, and it took like yeah, uh, I think a few months ago with one tree, I, I, I removed old foliage. And it's now in its third year, so uh, it, it, it takes some time. So, But it's because of the climate and stuff like that, yeah. Right, yeah, you guys have a, a little bit more of a, I guess, kind of cloudy, rainy, sort of cold climate for longer periods, I guess? Yeah, more or less, yeah. It's starting okay. to change. So uh, this year we had we had quite a warm, a warm year. And uh, normally, I think it looked like it changed, like we got some Spanish temperatures, here in Belgium and like I, I talked with Manuel and he had more like rainy days so it it looked like he had some Belgian weather and we had some Spanish weather so yeah yeah the whole world is changing so you keep uh, mentioning Manuel maybe we should tell everybody who Manuel is he uh, uh, studied at uh, Taishouen right yeah true true um, he was a student of, of Taiga Urishibata he's been there for six or seven years and we started school with him so um because uh, I can always learn and, and from, from everyone, I think it's uh, interesting to have several people here, but you have to have like um, one tree per person that you uh, use to, to learn something on so that the tree will develop, stuff like that, you know? And that's why I think it's important that you can learn from, from, from everyone. Yeah, you know, I, that's one problem that I've noticed over the years traveling and teaching mm -hmm. uh, is that, you know, somebody will bring a tree to a workshop with me that they've already worked on with four or five other professionals, you know, and everybody has a slightly different take on a tree, you know, so it's, it's one of those things where it's like two steps forward, one step back every time you work on that tree with a different professional. So my recommendation to people always is you don't necessarily have to work with just one person, but you should have, you know, one tree that you focus on with that person. So you can see the techniques, you know, come to fruition over four five, six years rather than bouncing around with that one tree. But you can study with 20 different people, just have a different tree for each of those people yeah, that you're sure. studying with. I, I totally agree with this one. So. 
Yeah, most definitely. So, uh, you know, and that's one thing that we're trying to do here with our school at, at ASAN. And it sounds like similar thing, you know, at, at your school with Manuel and with your students that come in on a regular basis is get them to bring back the same tree. But I have no problem at all if my students want to go study, you know, out at like Michael Hagedorn's place out in Portland or, uh, you know, Boone's place out in California, for example. You know, everybody's got a slightly different take. Plus, each of those uh, other professionals has a different approach to different things that I can also learn from. So if they're going to these classes and they pick up something that's really cool, if it's a better practice than what I had to begin with, you know, why not adopt it? If it, if it makes ramification faster on the tree, why not? If the graphs take faster, why not? Here, here, I also say the same thing to my students. Also when certain techniques are from certain species, I don't know. And I know uh, professionally here in Belgium, like Danny Hughes or uh, you, you name it, I tell them you can better go with that tree to his place or something and follow some classes with him so you can learn from that. But then they also maybe tell some techniques to me or something like that and I can learn also from, from the same. So for me, that's very important. Yeah, I think so too. I think uh, it's a lot easier to do that now with the internet. Now that everything is sort of available uh, online, I guess, or at least the information is more readily available. Because I know back in the day, uh, you know, everybody sort of hoarded the information to themselves, like kept it to themselves. It wouldn't tell anybody. And then you had all these big egos uh, in bonsai. And there, there's still a little bit of that going on, but it's kind of uh, fading out to some degree, which is a good thing, I think. Thank God. Thank God. So quite happy with that. Yeah, most definitely. That's actually why I like coming and working with you as well. And Nancy likes it when I go and work with you as well, because, you know, there's no there's no egos involved. There's some egos of people not far from you uh, that sometimes get uh, mixed in uh, when I come there. Uh, I remember certain comments popping up online after I did some workshops at <laughs> your place from some local people. But aside from that, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. Everybody's super cool, super chill. Uh, and, and like you said, a lot of the students that were coming to work with me at your place uh, also work with, uh, you know, other guys in the area or even travel, you know, to different countries in Europe uh, and work with different professionals there. So, you know, everybody's got a different climate, different species, different techniques. So it's, yeah, it's nice to kind of draw from, uh, from each of those. So, um, you know, uh, one thing I wanted to talk to you about in this uh, podcast was um, your fertilizer that you're working with. Uh, this is something new that you've uh, started to develop. So maybe you can talk a little bit about what you've been doing with that. Yeah, of course. Um, so at, at, at one day I was working with my friend Patrick, uh, filling up uh, fertilizer bags with uh, the, the Daiso tea bags that everybody uses and stuff like that. And were I you used... drinking uh, Duval at the time? Uh, no, we were drinking coffee actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> because, because it was quite, <laughs> quite early still. Afterwards, probably we, we have drank some, some Duval, but uh, yeah. <laughs> But uh, we were thinking because it takes a lot of time and, and effort to make them and I, I don't mind, but you can put that time uh, or spend that time working on a tree or, or um, maintaining trees, stuff like that. So I was thinking, uh, how, how can we solve this, this thing? But because of it, I, I use several kinds of fertilizer and every time each month I need to fill the bags and stuff like that. So. Uh, for over the past five years, I had an idea uh, to put them in coffee pads. So, and since this year, it was possible to put them onto the market and we tried it. And from uh, 25,000 bags, we now already sold 10,000 bags. So that's not bad for a new selling 
item or our fertilizer or how do you call it i can get it back and show you people if you want sure it's um this is the bag uh it's not nothing magical it's just nothing special it's just to uh for people to save time and risk this is just fertilizer and and coffee pads so you don't have to mix them up with real coffee pads and um, it's so that the grains will stay will stay into the pad and that the fertilizer goes or that the feed goes through 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 the soil of the tree uh, so that the soil will not um, because when you work with fertilizer and the fertilizer goes into the soil um, the grains will will how do you call it and how do you say it in English like clog up the soil to clog up the soil so root rot will will be you will fa faster get root rot and, and stuff like that so that was my idea and we started to put on the market this year um because in in, in here in europe we don't have a lot of trees that are already um trees that how do you say it that are we have a lot of trees that are still in development so we used something with a high nitrogen so they can have lots of growth and stuff like that. Um, now soon we're going to start also with an autumn uh, fertilizer. And then from next year on, we're going to uh, start with uh, a fertilizer that's mainly for trees that are already several years in development and that are starting to get their way into, into bonsai that are showable, or how do you have to say it? Right, a little bit more uh, in the refinement stage, I guess. Yes, 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 true. Um, in the future, we're also going to adjust certain things because uh, we want to have the, the, the bags, or how do we have to say it, um, that they are uh, even better and better in quality. And then we are going to mix it with a product so that the fertilizer will stay wet and very moist so the fermentation will be better as, as well so but right that are yeah things that, that's future. yeah that's one thing i've noticed with some of the fertilizers that are being produced in the states uh, some of the cakes that are made here uh, specifically for bonsai they don't ferment very well they they stay very dry so i don't think a lot of that uh, uh, you know the nutrients are actually being uh, absorbed into the soil uh, mm -hmm. or le leached into the soil and absorbed by the tree uh, so, you know, actually when we first started the nursery here a couple of years ago, I was looking for, you know, cheap alternatives that were also uh, organic uh, for fertilizer to use with the trees rather than using the, the cakes, which can get quite expensive. Uh, so we have something here called Hollytone, uh, which is a powder. Uh, but like you said, it's a pain in the butt to put the powder in. Uh, we were putting it in tea bags at the time. Uh, and actually last year, my in-laws, Nancy's parents, came to visit us for a couple of months. Uh, so they would spend, you know, three or four days just filling tea bags for me with the, the holly tone. Uh, but that got a little bit uh, laborious, I guess, and took too long. So I decided to switch over to something else this year. But you did send me uh, some of your fertipads to work with here. Uh, and uh, I wanted to sort of experiment with those on some of the trees that we had at the nursery that were looking a little bit weak, yes. for example. So I had uh, quite a few uh, trident maples that we had defoliated in May. Uh, we had the second flush of growth and it had finished out by about mid-June or so, maybe the third week of June. Uh, but the second flush on all of those was kind of a yellowy color. Uh, it wasn't really a dark green at all. So I decided to use the fertipads on those to see if we could uh, you know, fix the issue with the leaves. Uh, and I tried it on a few different other trees as well, but the, the tridents, I saw the biggest difference in color change 
with those out of everything. So after I put it on, I put them on the third week of June. Uh, and what are we now? We're at the very end of July. So uh, I'm guessing that those probably last about four weeks, like a typical yeah, fertilizer yeah, cake, right? So, you know, that gives us a full four to five week period right there. The difference in coloration from beginning to end was like night and day. All of those tridents have greened up completely. So, which is really cool. Uh, you know, and I, I have other fertilizer that's from the States that I've been using uh, as well. That's also organic. Uh, and I didn't see as much of a change in the color. Uh, on the other tridents that I use that fertilizer with. So, um, you know, maybe you could kind of give us a breakdown of the macronutrients, uh, like the NPK value. Uh, and then, uh, you know, if you've got any additional sort of micronutrients that are included in there. Yeah. Does that give people an idea? So um, we have the NPK value is 1048. And then we have magnesium that's uh, plus two. So, and... <clears throat> We have made these uh, organic mineral fertilizer, especially for bonsai, to have uh, a good and direct grow. And also there's magnesium included to get uh, extra color and uh, for the production of, of, of more chlorophyll, if that's the right English word. So yes, and also there's something in it for better, to have a better root system and a richer, um, a richer soil, uh, soil life, life, or how do you call it? Right, like the biodiversity in the soil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I think uh, you know all of those things are good. All of the uh, the micronutrients, like the magnesium, uh, molybdenum, zinc, copper, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, that's really what's going to change the coloration in your leaf. You know, it's. Uh, I think people uh, mistake the uh, macronutrients, the NPK. Uh, for actually giving you the, the greener color. Although nitrogen does help green up, uh, you know, the leaves to some degree, but it's more of the, the micronutrients that are going to help with that. Uh, so having that kind of stuff in there is a really good thing. That's, that's one major difference between using like a synthetic fertilizer and an organic fertilizer. Most of the synthetic fertilizers don't have uh, good amounts or any micronutrients in them. They just focus on the NPK. Uh, there are exceptions like Osmocote Plus. Uh, the plus means that it has added micronutrients to it. Uh, but you know, typically, if you can use organics, organics are going to give you a better result, better you know biodiversity within the soil, uh, and greener leaves on the tree. Because essentially, that yellow coloration that I was getting with the tridents, um, I mean, it could have been any one of those or multiples uh, of those micronutrients uh, being deficient in the soil and that's why I was getting that. It's basically what's called intervenal chlorosis. So the leaves turn yellow, but you can still see the sort of green veins of the leaves. Um, you know, and I think some people mistake that for overwatering or for sunburn, but typically that's just a sign that it's lacking in micronutrients. So having something like that that's going to build that up in the soil is definitely a good thing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So um how uh, how can people access your fertilizer? Where can people buy your fertilizer? They can contact me uh, on Facebook or they can uh, send me emails or they can go to my uh, web shop and it's at www.yama uh, and then what's the... Uh, dash? Dash and then bonsai.be. Uh, .be, okay, cool. I'll put a link to that in the description of this podcast and videocast so everybody can click on that and just go... Uh, directly there to check that stuff out. Are you able to ship that uh, in large quantities outside of Europe? Uh, say if somebody in the States wanted to buy some? Yeah, that's possible. So okay. if, if you would be interesting or someone else, that would always be interesting. 
so uh, we, we can we can talk about the stuff. So <laughs> all right, all right, we'll, we'll be we'll be in discussions. Uh, we can uh, load it up in the uh, the online shop at some point. Yeah, so. who knows? It would be nice. Cool. All right, man. Well, thanks for uh, for joining me on the podcast. Uh, do you have anything else that you wanted to add, or are you good? Uh, no, I'm good. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me for this podcast. I'm looking forward to see it online. So uh, thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'll, uh, I'll have this up in, uh, in a jiffy. So in the next couple of days, we'll have this up online. And uh, for those of you who are listening on the podcast version, on the videocast version on YouTube, I'll put overlays across the whole podcast so you can see Shunka and Nursery. You can see Yannick's place. You can see what the uh, workshop looks like. Uh, and then, uh, you know, some more details like that. Uh, plus, sometimes the, uh, the Zoom recording, which is what we're recording on right now, uh, doesn't come through very well. But the cool thing about YouTube now is that it automatically generates uh, subtitles. So everybody can see exactly what you and I are saying to each other, even if the audio quality sucks. Okay. So, uh, cool. All right, man. Well, I, I'm hoping that next year in uh, February that they'll actually be able to do the trophy in Belgium again. Uh, you know, with the coronavirus situation, it's a little difficult, but they've invited me to be the guest artist or one of the guest artists next year. Uh, so if everything goes through, I hope to see you at that point. Uh, catch up maybe grab a beer with you yeah of course definitely we will definitely do we will not go to Eindhoven though <laughs> no definitely not <laughs> all right man thanks uh, thanks for joining me on the episode and I'll talk to you next time okay talk to you next time thank you very much goodbye later man thank you for checking out this episode of the Bonsai Network podcast to have your questions answered in a future episode please send them to podcast at bjornbjornholm.com that's podcast at bjorn bjorholm.com 